0: Hashem tells Moshe Rabbeinu that this is his final mission. After he does this particular mission, he will leave this earth. His life is over. What was that mission? That mission was to take the Nakama, to take the revenge against Midian. Midian had caused a debacle, had caused 24,000 Jewish men to die. And Hashem gave this last mitzvah to Moshe Rabbeinu, take the Nakama take the revenge of the Bnei Israel against Midian, and after that you will join your people, meaning to say you will leave this earth, you will die. And interestingly enough, the Pesach then says, Moshe spoke to the nation saying, Gather together from yourself people, we're going to wage war against Midian. Rashi makes an observation, that even though Moshe knew that once this mission was complete, he was to die. Nevertheless, he did it with tremendous joy. He didn't delay. He didn't procrastinate. Immediately he told the Bnei Yisrael, let's go. Gather together men. We're going to war. And he did it with joy in his heart. And the Guru Ar-R-Y-A from the Mepharshim An Rashi explains that how do we know this? Because there are various instances where we see languages of Simcha, he did it with a shining, smiling countenance. If you looked at Moshe benu's face when he said these words, there was a smile, there was a shine, you could see the Simcha in his being when he gave this mitzvah. And this is very interesting to think about, because Hashem did not tell Moshe Benu when this mitzvah was to be done. Hashem said to Moshe, tell the Jewish nation to take revenge, their revenge against Midian. Once that happens, then you'll die. But Hashem didn't tell him to do it today, didn't tell him to do it tomorrow, didn't tell him to do it in a month. And there would have been no complaint against Moshe beno had he said, let's wait a month. I'll teach the Jewish nation for one more month. We'll spend a month together and then we'll do this mitzvah. But that's not what Moshe Beno did. Immediately he did it. And he did it with tremendous simcha. And it's say the Lederach one before Hashem explained that there's one more step involved over here. When Moshe Beno told the Jewish nation about this mitzvah, he actually changed the language. You see, Hashem said to Moshe, tell the Jewish people that they are to take their revenge. The revenge of B'nai Yisrael against Midian. Midian causes the back against against Jewish people. It's their revenge. But when Moshe went to the Jewish people, he said, take Hashem's revenge against Midian. He commanded them in a mitzvah tashem, And it explains why he did that. He said to himself, if I tell the Jewish people that they are to take their revenge against Midian, they may say, listen, we're mochal on our covet. Yes, Midian caused us, the Jewish people, a tremendous, tremendous hardship and tremendous pain. But we'll be mochal, we'll forgive them, we'll delay because we want to keep Moshe around. They knew that once Moshe does this final mitzvah, he's going to leave this earth. Because they would want him to stick around, they would say, let's delay. Therefore, Moshe changed the language. He said, it's Hashem's revenge. By saying that, now the Jewish people wouldn't delay Hashem's revenge. We have to go right away. And therefore, they in fact began the war immediately. And here's the question. It's clear from Rashi, as well as many of the of that Moshe Rabbeinu did this act with tremendous joy, with a shining countenance. He didn't delay. He in fact came up with an entire change of plan so that no one else should delay, so it should be done immediately. But the problem is, it spelled his doom. Moshe Rabbeinu knew that once he was done, it's over. He leaves this earth, he dies. How could he have done it with simcha? How could he have done it with joy? Isn't self-preservation one of the most instinctive, natural feelings within a human being. The Orch HaSadikim explains something very intuitive. He says, if you attack me, I'm going to fight back. It's just natural. If you punch me, I, I, I almost don't have Bechir anymore. I'm going to punch you right back. He explains that if you attack me verbally, you attack me physically, I'm going to fight back. Why? Because there's an instinct for self-preservation. There's a self-defense mechanism within the human being that automatically wells up. And Rishol Salat explains where this comes from. When Hashem created the human, Hashem put within us the most deep instinctive desire and need to stay alive. That instinct of self-preservation is the most fundamental, most powerful sense within the human, more powerful than any other drive more powerful than any emotion. <clears throat> this need to be alive is something that's so intrinsic in the human being that it is the single most powerful drive in the human being. So here's the question. Moshe Beno understood that his end was near. If you tell me he was so dedicated to the mitzvahs of Hashem that despite that fact he did it, I understand. But What Rashi is saying is he did it with joy. How could a man take on his death, go to his doom with joy in his heart? It sounds very difficult to understand. And if you don't fully appreciate why it should be so difficult, we know people who might be depressed. We know people who might be down. The reason fundamentally why they're down is because they feel helpless. They feel hopeless. Life doesn't have meaning. Moshe Rabbeinu understood life. To Moshe Rabbeinu, every minute of life was an opportunity to grow, to accomplish. He was at stellar heights already, but every moment of life was a moment to change the Jewish nation, change the people around him, grow himself. Every minute of life was precious beyond description because this was a man who understood life. If he so much understood life, and if we're so valued every second, how is it possible that he went to his death simcha with joy, I could understand that maybe he did it, but how could he do it with simcha? And I'd like to see if we can better understand what Rashi is telling us, and better understand the fundamental principle of the human being. And to do that, let me share with you a Marshall, a parable that the of Zavavavus gives us. He says, imagine two brothers, two brothers physically the same, but in terms of who they are, dramatically different. One brother is wise and energetic, and the other brother is lazy and foolish. In any case, these two brothers are left to Yerusha, their father dies, and these two brothers are left afield. Now the field is not large enough to support either family, so what they agree to do is they agree to split it, they split field, And each of them has to keep their day job because they have to earn enough money to support their family. The wise and energetic brother goes about business in a very interesting way. His nine to five. his Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. He spends working for others so he can support his family. But every spare moment, he goes to his field, he plants, he plows, he takes care of it. He spends every other moment he has free caring for his field. The lazy and foolish brother He has to work, he has to keep his nine-to-five job, he does that. But every other spare moment, he doesn't go back to his field, doesn't tend to it, he goes out drinking, he goes to the bar, whatever he does, and time passes. Comes time for the harvest. The wise, energetic brother brings in a bumper harvest, has plenty of money to spear. The lazy, foolish brother obviously has nothing to show for it. In any case, the next year, the wise brother... Has enough money that he doesn't have to work for other people he's able to support his family on that money he had left and he's able to spend the entire year working that field whereas the lazy brother has nothing and as time passes the energetic wise brother is able to add more field because he has his own field now and that crop produces well he's able to buy more land and more land after 10 years the wise and energetic fellow is extremely prosperous very wealthy while his lazy foolish brother is still working for others and the hovah of explains that this is a muscle to us this is a parable to our lives you see we are constantly working we're constantly working for our bosses or our communities or our spouses or our children but one thing for sure we have a tremendous amount of responsibilities we have to pay the bills and have to shop for clothing We have to worry about getting dressed. We have to do many, many things that we're involved in every day. And if you do the math, you'll soon see that there's not a lot of time left. If there are 168 hours in a week, and that's all there is, if you sleep eight hours, you just lost 56 hours there. If you're going to go to work 9 to 5, another 50 to 60 hours went there. If you're going to travel to work, there goes another 10 hours. Shower, shave, and get dressed, There goes another three, four hours. If you have to shop for food and pay the bills and etc. If you do the math, what you find out is of your 168 hours, there's very, very little time left for you. And here is a very significant question. What are you doing with that time? You see, whenever I travel, my kids have been trained to ask me, Abba, what'd you get me? What'd you get me? I think I made that mistake when the kids were real little. Whenever I'd go traveling, I'd bring them back something. And it became, I guess, almost habitual. They were Pavelonian trained to react as soon as Abba walks in the door, What'd you get me? What'd you get me? What'd you get me? And I'd like to share with you that that is a very significant point. Most people I meet are unhappy. And you have to ask why. Even from Jews. Even people who get it understand why they're here and they're growing, they're learning. They're still unhappy. And why? And I'd like to share with you a big part of the why. You see, every day that we're here in this world is a shopping day. It's a day to accomplish, a day to do. Imagine you go on a cruise and you stop at a port. And the prices there are so low. You can buy for, for pennies, you can buy dollars worth of stuff. But imagine that you bought nothing at that port. he would realize you came back empty, you blew an opportunity. Well, every evening, you, the Neshama, goes up to shemayim, and the single question which you ask yourself is, what did you accomplish? What did you bring me? You went into that physical world. You went into that world that you were in. There were so many opportunities. There were diamonds in the street. You could have done so much. What did you bring me back? And if the answer to what did you bring me back is some worn out davening, a blot of gemara that you fell asleep over, a chesed that you did for somebody when you were half out of it and not really interested, if that's what you bring back, you and you are not at peace. Because within you is a very clear understanding. You're put on the planet to grow, to accomplish. You're put on the planet to do major, major things. And each night as you lay your head on the pillow, you go up to Shemayim, you and you reconcile your day. And the question that you ask yourself is, okay, what did you do for me? What did you bring me? Yes, you took care of that one and that one, but what did you do for me? And the answer is very little. Well, guess what? There's an emptiness. There's a hollow sense within you. And there's a sense of, of why did I waste my time? Why didn't I accomplish? And there's a sense of, And if you like to know fundamentally why many, many people are at the core of their essence, lacking in life, in energy, in love of life, it's because they go around like robots, go around going through the motions, but never really understand why they're here, never really connect, And because they don't, they spend all this time focused on other things, never focused on why they're here, and there's a sense of emptiness within them. But growth isn't so simple. And growth isn't always as obvious as it may seem. You see, each generation has its own nacionos, has its own test. Each generation was given a very specific test. You see, not only was I as a human being given a mission, not only was I as a person given a stage setting, but each generation has its particular testing ground, its particular nesoyun, its particular life challenges. If you were born in 1920 in Poland, and you were bar mitzvahed in Dachau, your life test Is pretty pretty clear your whole life test might have been did you stay a religious Jew did you stay committed to your Creator if you grew up in the 1920s in New York City your single life test might have been do you keep Shabbos or not I know a man who told me that his grandfather who lived in just about those times in New York City lost his job every week, 80 weeks in a row. Friday he would come into the boss and he would say, tomorrow's the Sabbath, I can't work. The boss would say, don't come in tomorrow, don't bother coming in on Monday. And he lost that job. The next week he applied for another job and he got the job. That Friday he came to the new boss and said, sir, tomorrow's my Sabbath, I can't come in. And the boss again said, don't come in on Saturday, don't bother coming in on Monday. Week after week after week, he lost his job for 80 weeks straight. That is a major life test. Do you keep Shabbos under those circumstances or not? Now, if you or I were looking at either of those two scenes, we may say, big deal. Keeping Shabbos, that's a whole life test. That's a whole test of the generation. I keep Shabbos. What do you mean believing in God? I believe in God. That's the test? The whole test, maybe even the whole reason it was put on a planet, is to just withstand that one major test. That's not a test. I believe in God. I keep Shabbos. I believe in God. Why are those major life tests? What do you mean those are nationals for the generation? And the reason why it's difficult to judge a life test of a generation is because you have to be in the culture of the times. You have to be living within the framework of people living there, and you have to think, feel, and relate to things as people do then. But if from your perspective now, you're trying to judge them, you'll fail. Let me give you an interesting example. Studies show now that people today are much smarter than ever before. As a matter of fact, IQ tests today are significantly higher than IQ tests were 100 years ago. Here's a question Did suddenly mankind become smarter, wiser? Now, I know physically maybe we've grown taller, there's better nutrition, but why is it that people will become smarter all of a sudden? But if you'd like to know to what extent on the Westler intelligence scale, there's a 15 point difference in average scores today as opposed to 100 years ago. If you'd like to know what that means, if you were to score people of hundred years ago, their scores in modern time, the average person would be considered borderline mentally retarded. And the opposite, if you take the average score in our times and compare it back to 100 years ago, the average person today would be considered right on the borderline of gifted brilliant. Now why is it? What, what, did suddenly mankind became so smart 100 years ago, people were dumb and now we're so smart. Not quite. The answer is that we're inundated by very different ways of thinking. You see, as an example, one of the tests question is, and they'll ask this one to children, dogs and rabbits, how are they alike? That's the test question. Dogs and rabbits, how are they alike? Now, if the child answers, both are animals, that's given half credit. Yes, it's true. Dogs and rabbits are alike in the sense that they're animals. That's worth half credit. If the child answers, dogs and rabbits are alike because they're mammals, full credit. But if you were to ask that same question to a child 100 years ago, dogs and rabbits, how are they alike? Likely the child would have said, "Mm, I don't know, dogs chase rabbits. I don't know. But why is it? Are, Are kids now so smart? No. But kids now are schooled from maybe two years of age, to identify live objects, to identify classifications within animals, mammals, as opposed to reptiles. These are basic concepts that are repeated and repeated in the storybooks, in the culture. And they're so out there, so familiar that any child recognizes it. Whereas the thinking back then wasn't that dramatically linear in terms of animals being alive or not mammals versus reptiles and it's not that we're any smarter in any sense than people back then but the thinking processes today are different and we're schooled from a very tender young age to think about things differently look at things differently and the results are the test scores are much higher but here's the point we're not aware of this we're not conscious of it but the way we think the way we approach things Our attitudes, our perspectives are largely shaped by our culture. Would you like to know why it was a tremendous life test in the 1920s to keep Shabbos? Because if you didn't keep Shabbos, you had a job. And if you did keep Shabbos, you didn't have a job. And not having a job back then meant that your furniture and everything that you owned would be put on the street because you couldn't pay the rent. And you were on the street corner With your children crying, your mother-in-law making fun of you, everyone mocking you, what is your problem? Keeping the old country ways, Shabbos, that's for the old country, that's for Europe. What are you doing? And everyone who came over picked up this culture of be like the Yankee, be like the American. This is the modern times. And there was a pervasive sense of old ways are out, the new ways are in. And you were mocked by friend, family, and everyone else for dedication to your ideology, for keeping Shabbos. And here's the point. I don't know how I would fare in that Nesayim. If you grew up in Dachau and everyone around you said, Where is God? There can't be a God. God is dead. God never was. If that was the culture of everyone around you, how would you react? I don't know. But one thing I do know, it's not our world. Of course Hashem is here. Of course Hashem loves me. The problem is, I don't understand it. I don't understand me. Maybe I lost focus. But the things that we take as givens, the things that we take as accepted facts, were not present earlier. And the reason why it's so difficult to judge another generation's life test is because our culture, our way of thinking, our approach to everything is different, and you're right, it wouldn't be a big deal for me to keep Shabbat, because everyone I know keeps Shabbat, I'm respected greatly for it, it's part of the world I live in, but take me and put me in that world, with a different mindset, a different perspective, I don't know what it would be, but the key here is, that judging a different generation, requires climbing into their shoes, feeling the winds that blow, thinking like them, and understanding what they're thinking, what they're feeling, what they're actually going through. And the reason why I say that is because we human beings are very judgmental. I know where he's holding. I know where she's at. He's this and that. He's holding there. She's holding there. I'm a very fine judge. And the reality is we don't have a clue. I don't know where different generations were really at. I don't know where people are today because I'm not in their world. You see, I don't feel what he feels. I don't think what she thinks. I have my mind, my perspective, my upbringing, my emotionality, and that's how I approach things. But for me to climb into another person's world and feel the world from their standpoint, think in their mind and view things as they view it, is very, very difficult for me. And let me give you a muscle to sort of bring this home a bit. A number of years ago, I hurt my back. And a friend of mine took me to the gym, and it was a powerlifting gym, and I went through the whole routine, the deadlifting, the bench pressing, the various uh, powerlifting things to build up muscles in my back, and I found it very therapeutic, and it, it did a very good job. In any case, when I was in yeshiva, there was, I was a rebbe in yeshiva, there was a younger guy who was in the kolo still, who knew I was going to work out, and he asked to come along, so I took him to the gym, and he met Art. Art was the widest human being I ever met, he was the coach. And Art immediately saw that this fellow was a yeshivish guy who never worked out before in his life. But Art was a kindly, patient fellow, and he worked very carefully with this colo uh, guy. And he showed him how to lift, and how to do the motions. And he worked with him very closely for about a month. And after about a month, I was speaking to this fellow in the Kolo. I said something like, how's it going? And he said, I don't get that guy. I don't, what's with that coach? Every time I get the motion right, he puts more weight on the bar. <laughs> what's wrong with the guy? I didn't have words to say to this fellow. Why? Because progressive weight training is about increasing the load. The motion is only significant in the fact that it taxes the body more. It's not the motion. It's the amount of load, the amount of weight that you put on the bar that you're moving. That causes the growth. But apparently this fellow didn't quite connect the dots. Didn't realize that. And I believe that's an apt parable. You see, you are carrying a bar, and I'm carrying a bar. But guess what? My bar doesn't weigh the same as yours. And for me to judge you, I would have to know exactly what's on your bar. I would have to know exactly how much weight you're carrying, exactly how strong you are versus that weight, to determine whether you should have done three squats or four, five or ten. But I don't have a clue. And if you're not sure that I'm right, I'll share with you an interesting example. I know a fellow who does not dominate with a minion. He dominates, but never with a minion. So you may say to me, oh, obviously he's not a touch of guy. He's not really growing. He's not really worked out because he almost never dominates with a minion. Obviously he's lacking in the fundamentals until I explain to you why he doesn't dominate with a minion. He has social anxiety. He's very, very, very uncomfortable amongst people. And when every goes to a shul, Am I standing too close to that guy, too close to that one? And I hear him and there, where should I be? How should I be? Where should I? He gets so anxious that he cannot, he's just gone, he cannot dominate For him to daven in the shul, he might as well just not dominate all. Hence he doesn't dominate the shul, he dominates at home. But you see, I don't know that unless I know that. And if I don't know that, I don't have a clue to what's on his bar. I see a guy that doesn't come to the an dominion, and I know exactly where he's at. He's a bum. You know, well, guess what? It's not quite true. And until you fundamentally know what a person's life circumstances have brought him to, until you know his emotionality, until you know his entire psyche, until you know how he thinks, how he feels, how he relates to things, you cannot judge him. You know what it's like to have OCD? OCD is a couple of letters, right? But when you have compulsive thoughts, and these thoughts are constantly, constantly, constantly coming up, It changes your life. But imagine for a moment that you have compulsive thoughts about God not existing. But you're a from guy. But you're not sure. Maybe Hashem isn't here. Maybe, I don't know. Your life is very different. What about a fellow who has, excuse my saying it, homosexual tendencies? He doesn't wish for it. doesn't want it to be. But these are thoughts that plague him. Well, guess what? When he goes through the motions of his life, it's very different than you and I because he's carrying a pretty heavy load. What about a guy with ADHD? Complete distractibility. Gone, 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 gone. ABC, one, two, three, what? There goes butterfly, what? 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 Can't learn, can't dominate, can barely hold the conversation. His mind is racing and running and doing. Uh... Go try being a productive human being when you're constantly distracted, Come running from thought to thought. Listen, I know where that guy. He's not learning. He's not a big learner, he's not good. he's I. And the reality is that while we human beings are very, very quick to judge, we are clueless, we don't have the equipment to judge, because we don't know the bar that that person's holding. We don't know how much weight they're lifting, and the reality is we're clueless. But here's one point that I'd like to share with you. If every human being was shown the pekel, the package of anyone else, they would run from it. I heard my Rebbe, the Shiva Zatzal, give that mushel, it's an older mushel, that every human being has a package, a heavy sort of burden they carry. If each of us would take off our burdens, put it in the middle of the room, and we'd see his burden and her burden and this one's burden and that one, I would run for mine. I would run for mine and grab it. Why? Because mine was custom designed for me. Mine was hand fashioned based on my strengths, my capacity, my abilities. Oh yes, when I'm wearing that pack, it's heavy. But I have the fortitude. I have the build. I have the requiem needs to be able to carry that burden. But if I were given your burden, forget about it. It would be very different. And as Hashem Creates each human being with different strengths, talents, and abilities. Hashem puts each human being into a different life setting, and Hashem gives a different burden to each human being. Not because Hashem is oppressing, not because Hashem wants to torture people, quite the opposite. Because, much like that bar that you put the weight on, the more weight the person lifts and lifts, the stronger he gets. The purpose of life is growing. Each human being is put into a generation with a life test to that generation, each human being is given strengths and talents, and each human being is given a very specific burden, a very specific load on his bar, and he's challenged to accomplish what he's put on the planet to do. But you see the problem that we often face is, I judge you, you judge me, by some objective standard, as if we're all supposed to be here you're here and I'm here, or the opposite. And we sort of pretend there's some objective standard that everyone is measured against. And because I see assume you are or are not at that place, I become very, very judgmental. I decide assuming exactly assuming whether you're good or not, where you're holding or not holding, and I have it pegged exactly right. But the reality is there is no objective standard. The only standard is a standard of I. Each of us are measured by one single criteria. These were your strengths. These were your talents. This is what you could have been. How much of you did you become? And if you'd like a mushal to help define this a parable, imagine that you watch from the audience a beautiful symphony. And up there on the stage is the symphony orchestra with the winds and the brass section, the percussion, and it's beautiful, harmonious, beautiful, beautiful music. And when they're done, each musician puts his instrument down, they leave the stage for the intermission. Now if you go onto the stage and you look, you'll see very, very different instruments. The French horn makes a very unique sound. Very different than the kettle drum. The flute is lofty, it's high, very sweet, and it's a very different tone than the bass. And each instrument makes a different sound, each instrument has a different role to play, and when they play together, it's a beautiful symphony. The music is fantastic. Now imagine for a minute there's a kid, a kid who plays the violin. And he plays the violin very well. In fact, he's a maestro. He's known internationally as a brilliant musician. Even though he's a young kid, he's eight years old, but he plays so phen- He's so talented; it's incredible. And he plays in that very symphony. And they're playing, and they're playing, and you see the kid, and you're astounded. He's playing with adults, but he's playing like one of them. And he's an, a gifted musician. And finally, the symphony's over, and everyone goes home, and you hear the kid say, Drat! Did you hear how loud that kettle drum was? Did you hear how squeaky my violin? I hate my violin. It's squeaky and, 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 and it's noisy. I want to play the drums. Boom, 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 boom. That's what I, I want to play the drums. And he's not happy. And he makes, I'm never going to be happy. I'm never going to be happy again playing this violin. I hate this violin. It's squeaky and noisy. I want boom, 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 boom. Now, clearly, that's an immature attitude because he plays the violin beautifully. And the music that comes out is lofty. It's gorgeous. But if he sets his mind on the fact that it's squeaky, high-pitched, very, very small sound. And I want a big sound. I want a kettle drum. I'm going to play the kettle drums. But guess what? He's going to make himself very unhappy. And likely he's going to give up his phenomenal talent. And maybe he'll make it to the kettle drum banger but it'll never be what he could have been and I believe that that's an apt parable many many people are unhappy with the role that they're given to play as if to say I should be that I should be this why was I given this role I want to play the kettle drum not the violin I want to play the flute I don't want to be but each person was given the talent, the capacity to play that exact role and if you were created to play the harp but you decide you don't like that, you want to play the French horn, well, guess what? If you weren't given the capacity for that instrument, and you weren't given the needed, necessary requisites, you're going to fail at it miserably. And no matter how much you decide, I should have been given this, I should have had that, it would be better if I was given his position, better if I was given his test, you're not right, and you'll cause yourself tremendous misery. Would you like to understand Moshe Rabbeinu? Moshe Benu had a love for life. He valued every minute of life incredibly. But he also trusted Hashem. And he knew fully well that Hashem knows better than he what's for his best. And when Hashem told him, this is what you should do, Moshe Benu knew that what Hashem says is for his best. Hashem needs nothing from this world. Hashem gets nothing from this world. Everything that Hashem commands us in is for our benefit. And because Moshe Benu understood that, now when Hashem commanded him to do this final act, take the revenge against Midian, it was for Moshe's benefit, and it was good for him. With full trust in Hashem, he said, Hashem knows better than I, and he did that mitzvah with simcha. Yes, he had a lust for life. Yes, he loved life. Yes, he knew that this would spend the, spell the end of his life, but he trusted in Hashem. He did that act with joy, because he knew that this is right, this is good, this is proper, And he knew that Hashem knows better than he how to gain his world to come. And many, many people have everything they need to be happy. They're even actually growing. They're even actually accomplishing in this world. But they have a certain version of I should be. I should be this. I should be that. And these thoughts gnaw at them and bother them again and again and again. And guess what? A human being is quite capable of making himself miserable. Much like that kid who decides the violin is too squeaky. I, I want the kettle drum. A human being could be gifted to play the role that he's playing. And he could be doing a phenomenal job. But he decides, I should be playing a different role. I don't like that role. I should be given his role or her role. I should be that. I should be that. Well, guess what? He's going to make himself miserable. Moshe Beno had complete trust in Hashem trusted Hashem in this world and in the next world. And because of that complete trust, he knew that what Hashem commanded him was ultimately for the good. He went with simcha with joy because he trusted Hashem that this was for his best. This is good. And that trust was so complete that he went with joy, even though it meant the end of his life. And I believe that this concept is fundamental for happiness. You see, as I've discussed many times before, there are two concepts that a person has to have if they want to have bitachon. The first concept is very easy to acquire. The second one is very difficult. The first concept is understanding that Hashem loves me more than I love me. Understanding that as much as I want my benefit, Hashem wants it more. As much as I want things that are, to turn out well for me, Hashem wants it even more. This understanding of any concern, care that I have for myself is multiplied tremendously to compare and understand the love that Hashem has for me. And any love that I have for myself is but minuscule compared to the love for Hashem ha- that Hashem has for me. And this, the first concept that Hashem loves me more than I love me, is pretty easy to attain. Just watch a young parent with an infant. Watch the mother, watch the father, or the newborn baby. And you see a love, a caring, a giving and you know that the mother, the father would give their life for that baby. They never met the baby before. The baby was just born, but the parents will sacrifice anything, everything for the newborn. Where does that come from? That instinct was implanted in their heart by Hashem, and that's but one ten thousand, ten thousandth of the love that Hashem has for any creation. The Cholos of explain to us: Take the most kindly giving, loving person you ever saw. That doesn't begin to be one ten thousand, ten thousandth of the love that Hashem has for any one of His creations. So the first concept, that Hashem loves me more than I love me, isn't that difficult to attain. If you step back, if you watch, if you think, you can begin understanding that. But it's a second concept that gives us most of the trouble. The second concept is knowing that Hashem knows better than I what's for my best. Understanding that Hashem has a very wide vision, that Hashem has a long plan. And Hashem knows better than I do what's for my good and what isn't. And this one causes us so much trouble. 80% of our philosophical problems, 80% of our questions on God stem from this single issue. We play God. Playing God means I know what I need. I need to marry that woman. I need to get my kid into that class. I need to get that job. And I explained it to God. I broke a deal. I'll learn the dafiyomi. I'll daven more. Please Hashem I need it. I daven, I daven. And, 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 and so I'm going. Right, Hashem what's the deal? I explained it to you. I made a deal. Do, do you hate me? Hashem you asked to get me. What's the Hashem what's the deal? And that single thought that maybe this isn't for my best never crosses my mind. And yet how many times do you hear that the guy needed to marry that girl? And he didn't. And she married someone else. And two years later, he hears the word mentally unstable as an understatement to describe her state. I got to get that job. And I didn't get the job. And then five years later, I discovered the entire industry is shipped over to India. I got to get my kid into that class. And then six months later, I find out there was another child in that class who would have been the worst possible influence. Playing God means I know what I need. I know the future. I know what's best, and I explain it to God, and I hope God sort of plays along with it. But you see, that's not being an evid Hashem, that's not being a servant of Hashem. That's playing Hashem, it's playing God. Being an evid Hashem, being a servant of God, means recognizing that I am a mortal human being. I serve God as He commands me. I trust that He knows better than I what's for my best. I don't expect Him to do my bidding I don't expect that if I do X, Y, and Z, he'll then do my bidding. He'll do what I need to do. No. I serve God because he's my creator. I serve God and I trust that he's taking me along a path, along a journey. And I trust that he knows better than I what's for my best. Boat Abino had both of these qualities fully, fully in front of him. So he went on his last mission knowing that it was the end of his life. But he went with tremendous joy because he understood and it was for his best, he understood that Hashem is bringing him to his ultimate benefit, and even though he couldn't see it, even though death would be horrible, oh my goodness, to live another life, another moment, to live to accomplish, to create, was something that Moshemina loved and tremendously lusted for, but he fully knew that Hashem knows better than he what was for his best, and he went to Simcha. And again, I have seen many, many people unhappy. The first reason why people aren't happy is because they're not growing, they're not accomplishing. If you go up to Shemaim, when you go to sleep at night, you go up and you realize I wasted my light day. I didn't do anything, I didn't accomplish. If you come up empty handed and you and you have that little discussion, what you bring me? And the answer is nothing. Oh I don't know, I was kinda of half asleep during learning, learning and dominating, I helped somebody, I didn't help somebody. I don't know, whatever, I just I was very busy, very, very busy, 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 busy there's an emptiness within you and obviously the first thing you have to do is you have to grow and accomplish you have to have a very clear mission in life we're given the torah with very exact specific mitzvahs and you have to follow it and be very involved in it and when you do that, there's a sense of accomplishment a sense of growth a sense of happiness but even if you do that there are many people who sabotage their sense of happiness because they decide, yes, it's true, I'm learning, I'm dominating, I'm taking care of my family, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, but I could be. And how much better it would be if only I had money. I'd be learning, I'd accomplish so much, I'd open this stuck organization, I'd form this hospital, you wouldn't believe what I would do. And because I know what I need, and I know how much better it would be if only I could manage... To be miserable. Sometimes it's a foolish thing. There are people who are doing well, accomplishing, but they need to be rich. I need to be rich. I need to have a lot of money, a lot, a lot of money. Sometimes the most ridiculous reasons as I need to be known and famous and and find out how quickly that cover leaves you. But if you decide that I need to be rich, and if I'm not rich, I will not be happy, Guess what? You will succeed in one of those two. Most likely, you'll succeed in not being happy. Not so likely you'll guarantee to be rich because Hashem gives wealth to different people in different circumstances, and different times. But if your pursuit of being wealthy, your pursuit of being rich is foremost, and until I get it, I just won't be satisfied, I just won't be happy, I guarantee you will be unhappy. Even if you get rich, you'll be unhappy. And more likely than not, you're not even going to get there anyway. But one thing for sure, you're destined to be unhappy because you've created this illusion, this image of I need, I need, I need, and it will never be satisfied. But even if you're dealing with people who are more concrete, even if you're dealing with people who are growing and get it, and they understand that money is just one of those tools that God gives us for different situations you could still manage to make yourself very unhappy because I need to be. It would be so much better if I were. And if you set your mind on that, I guarantee you'll be unhappy. And on a personal note, and I'll share with you, it's not that far from home. When I was a little bit younger, not that much, well, a little bit younger, I knew what I was supposed to do in life. Baruch Hashem, I was very involved in learning in yeshiva and in kolal what I felt was tremendous atzlacha. And I knew that I was supposed to be a Rosh Yeshiva. I knew it clearly. It was clear in my bones. I knew I was supposed to open a yeshiva. And I had it planned out. And I had the whole map. And I was a good teacher. And I was Baruch Hashim, able to learn a little bit, at least the way I thought I did. And there was no question I could bring guys along because that I certainly did as a high school Rebbe. I was for about 15 years a high school Rebbe. And I knew that I was supposed to open a yeshiva and I would build guys up. And I had a plan. And for 10 years, I pursued that plan. And had all kinds of offers. People out of town offered to pay the whole expenses, whatever. Somehow that fell through. Then I had another situation that fell through. But for 10 years, I pursued that avenue. I knew I could take a group of guys. I could build them up. I could get them into learning. I could accomplish worlds with them. I knew that what I was supposed to be is a shiva Well, guess what? I never succeeded. I didn't open a Yeshiva. Attempt after attempt failed. And finally, after long enough, I said, I, I get it. I went back to the, what I was supposed to be doing, I guess, teaching high school. But here's the point. You would not be listening to this shmooze today had I been in Rosh Hashiva. You see, I didn't realize it at the time. I couldn't have realized it. But guess what? I sincerely believe that I'm supposed to be doing exactly what I'm doing right now. But that was the kind of vision that I could not have. As a matter of fact, it was the kind of vision that nobody could have. Because I went asking different people for advice. I asked older people, Tamiri Chachamim, people with tremendous wisdom. In fact, I went to Rabbi Elias, who was from Breuer's, one of the, he was the head of the seminary, but he was a real Chacham. He was a Talmud of Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky. And I asked him advice. I told him, I I like saying Shmuzen. I just, I want to say Shmuzim, that's what I want to do. But he and I both realized that you can't do that all day. You have to have a regular job. You can't just say that just There's no job like that. And guess what? That was true. Until Hashem orchestrated it, until the directed me towards this, and suddenly, lo and behold, what do I do all day? I say Shmuzim. But you and I know you can't do that. And you can't really, I mean, but it doesn't really exist. But you see, I didn't know that. I certainly couldn't have known it but how much unhappiness i could have saved myself had i been a little bit more accepting in the vashem's direction and i been more okay hashem you're in charge i gave the good lord a rough time for 10 years eventually even i got it but that's the point each person was given different talents different strength and you're supposed to serve hashem as hashem wants you to serve him but what that mission is Likely you don't know and likely you're not going to find out about it until you get into things So you get involved you try this you try that and suddenly something opens up suddenly an avenue happens suddenly things begin Changing you have to have plans you have to have the direction you have to try But you also have to have a full understanding that Hashem knows better than I what's for my best Based on my talents based on my strengths. I say this is what I should do and I try it But it doesn't go I try something else and it doesn't go I try something else but all the while, I have to have the sense that Hashem is in charge. And if this door is closed and I push and I push and it doesn't open, I try another door and it doesn't go, and it doesn't go. Eventually, I get the message and I say, Hashem, what do you want me to do? And hopefully, I listen. But you see, here's the point. While the journey often takes time and finding exactly where you should be focused isn't always so obvious. And it's not always available at different stages in your life. But at all times a person has to have the sense of Hashem is directing me. And there's a journey, there's a path, Hashem is taking me along that path and I trust in my Creator. And at any given time, you find yourself looking back, oh look what He has. If only I was given His brain, His asmada, His alacrity. His, if only I had this, oh if only I was wealthy. If only I had Anytime you catch yourself saying those things, you have to step away and say, wait a minute. Hashem created me with strength, with talent, with abilities. Hashem gave me a very particular life mission. Hashem put that bar on my shoulders with just the right amount of weight. I'm going to go forward. I'm going to move with all of my strength. But I know that I'm headed in the direction that Hashem wants me. And I work and I work. That door opens great. If not, I find another door. But the point is that I trust in my Creator and I never move back into that sense of if only. And I cannot tell you how many people are miserable. If only I had married a different person. Oh, I married the wrong person. If only I had gotten a different job. Oh, only I had been this or that. Hashem, why'd you make me with ADHD? Hashem, why'd you make me with OCD? Hashem, why'd you give me these problems? Hashem, why'd you give me this situation? And if you think in those patterns and think in those thoughts, you have to do a lot of work on recreating your mind, structure, creating the patterns of your thinking. You have to catch yourself and you have to focus on it. This concept is very, very difficult to incorporate because we all have this sense of judging. And we all have this objective value system. This is where a person should be and I'm not that. I should be here. And I'm like, now maybe you should be there. But one thing for sure, because he's there, doesn't mean you should be there. He has his test. You have your test. And I don't know where you should be. Should you be driven? Yes. Should be, you always know, focus on growing and accomplishing? Yes. But if you find yourself over and over comparing yourself to this one, to that one, and saying, look how much better, look how much bigger, look how, then if it brings you a sense of despondency, of yeyosh, guess what? You got it wrong. You got it wrong because you don't understand life. You got it wrong because you're focused on things incorrectly. And only because this is so difficult to really get into our bones, I want to share one more hazal on this point. Rashi points out many times in the Chumash, it says Moshe's name first, and many times it says Aaron's name first. Who Moshe of Aaron? Who Aaron of Moshe? And you'll see it interchangeably. Sometimes it's Moshe and Aaron, sometimes Aaron and Moshe. And Rashi says, why is this? Why is it clear that even in one Pasuk, the Torah interchanges them? He says, Rashi, this is to teach us a lesson, Loma Shem Shkulim, to teach us that Moshe Rabbeinu and Aaron Akkoin are equal. They're both on the same level. Don't make a mistake. As great as Moshe Rabbeinu was, so too is Aaron. Don't think Moshe was greater than Aaron, don't think Aaron was greater than Moshe. Shkulim, they were exactly equal. Now, that Rashi is rather perplexing. Why? Because you and I both know that the single greatest human being who was ever created was Moshe Beno. He was the one who went up to Shemayim. He was the one who received the Torah. He was the teacher of the Jewish nation. As great as Aaron or Cohen was, he was not Moshe Beno. Moshe Beno was the single greatest human being Av b'chokhmah Navua the Rambam describes him as in a league in and of himself. So how could Rashi say they were equal? And the answer to that question is there are two standards of measure. There's an objective standard and a subjective standard. The objective standard is this is where a person is at. Moshe Rabbeinu was greater in learning than Aaron Cohen. Moshe Benu was reached a greater level of nevuah. And from an objective standard... Moshe Rabbeinu was greater but the real measure of the person is not in the objective sense it's in the subjective sense based on his strengths his talents how much of he did he become 80 percent, 60 percent 40 percent what Rashi's teaching us is our coin reached 99.9 percent of his potential Moshe Rabbeinu reached 99.9 percent of his potential it's true that Moshe Rabbeinu towered over the rest of humanity it's too true because he was given such a tremendous potential. He became the single human being to speak to Hashem, literally conscious, awake, and alert. And it's true that an objective standard, he was greater than Aaron, but that's not the real measure of the man. When they leave this earth, they go in front of Hashem, they are what they made themselves into. There, the one standard of measure is subjective. Based on your strength, your talent, your abilities, How much of you did you become? Aaron reached 99.9%. Emotion, 99.9%. Shkulim, they were equal. And this concept is fundamental to understanding life. And this concept is fundamental to happiness. Because so many times a person can have everything lined up. Growing, accomplishing, everything is in place. But he's plagued by these thoughts. If only I should be this and I should be that. If I had been, I should be if in fact you're not really growing, if in fact you're not really accomplishing, I agree with you. But if you ask advice, you show all Eitzah, and you're given direction that this is the right way to go, this is what Hashem wants, then you trust in Hashem, and you accept that fully. As an example, I had a fellow who once asked me the following question. He had done very well financially, and he was at a point where he could support his family easily, for the rest of his life, he asked me the question, should he retire now and go back to Kolo? Should he retire and go back sit and learn? He had been in yeshiva, he had been in Kolo a number of years. He went into business, he had done very, very well. He now made enough money. Should he now go back to Kolo, sit and learn? Would you like to know what I said to this fellow? Well, before I tell you what I said to him, let me give you the background. We would learn on the phone once a week. And one week he apologized, he calls up before we learn. He said, Rebbe, this week I can't learn. I apologize, but the governor wanted to have breakfast with me. And the only time that the governor was available was our morning slot. I apologize, I have to miss this week. Why did the governor want to have breakfast with this fellow? Because the state owed him $62 million. And the governor was trying to beg off some time. And this fellow was so phenomenally successful... Because that was the mission that Hashem gave him. And when I told this fellow was, no, absolutely you should not go back to Kolo. You're supporting tremendous amounts of yeshivas and stuckers and, and you're building communities. Should you learn? You have to learn. You have to dominate. You have to grow as an individual. And you have to have very serious sadarim. You have to have very serious learning sadarim. You have to have people you learn with and be involved in learning. But it's clear that your mission in life is not to be in Kolo. What you're doing now with for whatever which reason you were chosen and given this mission. And this is what you should be doing. And of course, when I say that example, most people go, oh, if only I had here. Oh, if I had real wealth, that'd be that's a great life. I would love to add one. And look what I could do. And Rabbi Sheffer would tell me, I don't have to go back to coal. I can learn a few hours, then it's great. Now, I gave my Olam Haba. Try it sometime. Try it sometime where every move you make you know that everyone is watching you with hunger, with one thing in mind. They see you as a dollar bill. They see you as green. And they treat you with honor due to kings because he's a rich guy. Look at the rich guy. Look at the rich. And he can't go anywhere. They can't walk anywhere without people. <laughs> Try being a normal human being then. Try being grounded. Try keeping your hashkaftas, your attitude, your perspectives online when that's your life test. And when you begin studying this thing called life and you look at different people's life tests, you quickly realize Hashem gave me the exact talents, abilities, put me in a particular generation, gave me a particular mission in life, put just the right weight on that bar and said, go out, grow, accomplish, be what you could be. But what I'm supposed to be is not what you're supposed to be. If I'm playing the violin and you're playing the kettle drum, you may, may, may make more noise. But it's not about the noise it's not the objective standard it's how well you play your instrument how well you live your life and that's the only measure of the man i think this chazal teaches us a tremendous concept when moshe Rabbeinu was given his last mitzvah he did it basimch, without delay immediately and even changed the story so that the menace don't procrastinate why did he do that because he trusted hashem he knew that hashem knew better than he what's for his best and he understood that this is what Hashem wants. It means it's for my betterment. It's for my good. He went the simple with joy in his heart. There is a human instinct for self-preservation. But a person can overcome that with his understanding. Hashem guides me. Hashem brings me to where I'm supposed to be. If you'd like to know why most people are unhappy, it's those two brothers. The wise, energetic brother took care of his responsibilities and used every spare moment to take care of his own personal field. And through that, he became prosperous, very wealthy. And the lazy brother said, ah, I can only spend an hour or two on that field, forget it. Spent the rest of his time partying, and he remained who he was. Those brothers are you and I. When we leave this earth, we'll either feel tremendous joy and happiness for our accomplishments, or we'll say, Ugh, what did I do? And if you wonder why a person is happy or unhappy now, one of the reasons is because when you come up to Shemayim each night, when you put your head on the pillow and there's a sense in you of what did I do? What am I accomplishing? What what am, what am I bringing to me? And you know the answer is my hands are empty. Well, guess what? You're going to be very unhappy. And you're going to be working your whole life, constantly working. If you understand life and you understand that everything that Hashem gives you is an opportunity to grow, then all of your obligations are part of your avodus Hashem. When you go to work, you're serving Hashem because that's what Hashem wants you to do then. When you're paying your taxes, you're paying them because that's what Hashem wants you to do. Your nine to five, your entire life is serving Hashem. But to recognize that you have to have your brain on on, you have to be growing, and you have to be really, really working on yourself. And certainly you're learning and you're davening, which are more directly things that you can understand that benefit you, you have to focus on. When you do that, you recognize that Hashem gave you a mission. Hashem gave you a particular mission in life, different than mine, different than his, different than anyone else's. And when you understand that, you understand growth is not one-dimensional. We're not all measured by one standard. The only standard is the standard of I. Now, I would like to close with something that I say often, but it bears repeating the draw tells us that the most painful moment in a human being's life is not that fatal car crash, not when I hear the metal shearing off, not even when all the guy pulls that sheet over my head, and not even when I separate from my body. The Legrot explains that the most painful moment in a human being's existence is when I come in front of the Beisdun Shamala, the heavenly tribunal, and then they hold up this picture, this picture of this great man and this tzaddik, Tamar Chochum, who changed the very generation he lived in. And they say to me, why didn't you become that? Me, little me. You want me to be that great man, that tremendous, what, what do you want from me? And says the girl, the most painful words you'll ever hear are the words, that is you. That is you had you lived up to what you were destined to be. That is you had you become what you were put on the planet to be. That is you had you actualized your strength, had you become what you should have been. But you see, that picture is a picture of me. I'm not compared to you. You're not compared to someone else. None of us are compared to the Chabbat Chaim or the Bekveger or the Sofer. Each of us are compared to the most demanding, exacting standard, the standard of I. Based on my strengths, my talents, my abilities, based on the generation I was put into, this was your mission. What did you do? How well did you play your role? How much of you did you become? When you understand this, there's a love of life. And there's a value to every minute of life. And all of those nagging thoughts of I could be like that, I should be like that. Ah, Hashem, why did you give me this tough, tough stuff? Hashem, why did you give me? I guarantee you have an assignment. Everyone does. But when you understand that that's weight on the bar that's put there to give you the workout so that the increase of the load increases the strength, then you will be ultimately what you make yourself into. There's a love of life, there's a joy, there's a happiness. That's what Moshe Beinu had and ultimately that's what Hashem wants for each and every one of us.